This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. I think the tension always is, you know, where does sort of good, genuine Christian theology begin and where does a kind of westernized sort of version of, well, this is what you should learn in a good Bible school. <laughs> when does that start to creep in and start to potentially suffocate, you know, what is a perfectly God-given and valid African expression of spirituality? This is Where You're From, an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today. Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thanks for joining me on Where You're From. This week, we are thrilled to share our first ever international episode with British apologist, author and podcaster Justin Brierley. Justin is the founder of the wildly popular radio show and podcast, Unbelievable, and most recently, the co-host of the Re-Enchanting podcast. You can find out more about Justin by clicking in the show notes or by visiting whereyoufrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Please join me as I ask Justin Briley, where you're from? I was born in a town called Northampton, which is kind of in the middle of England, really. And that was in December the 24th, Christmas Eve, 1979, <laughs> um, which is kind of funny because that means I just missed out on being a millennial. Apparently, <laughs> only if you were born in 1980 onwards are you a millennial. So I am officially, by just a few days, a Gen X. Mm, that's really interesting. So where were your parents from? So my parents met at Oxford University. My dad was a biochemist. My mum was studying languages. Interestingly, they both came from sort of Anglican background. So both of their fathers were Anglican ministers, but they hadn't kind of really taken on the faith for themselves by the time they'd hit their teens. But it was at university that they found faith. It was through kind of an evangelical church in Oxford, which is still very active among students today. Hmm. And they kind of were both converted around the same time during their university years. And then they became involved with this very kind of radical new fellowship that had emerged in the early 70s. And this was a kind of part of the UK equivalent of the Jesus People Movement. Well, for those who don't know what the Jesus People Movement was, maybe you can just kind of yeah. illuminate what the, the implications of that are. Well, if you go back to the late 60s and early 70s, especially on the west coast of the USA around that time you know with the countercultural movement and you know everything that was going on alongside the beatles and the stones and the kind of the the LSD culture there was also this extraordinary move of god whereby a lot of the hippies started to come to faith especially through things like calvary chapel and chuck's ministry there he saw a lot of you know, young people baptized in the ocean. It kind of completely transformed this church into this place where all these kind of hippies and dropouts suddenly started, you know, 
turning their life over to God and creating all this new music. Essentially, it was the beginning to a large degree of a lot of the ministries that, you know, are kind of well known in the evangelical church today kind of started in that. But it kind of crossed the Atlantic, basically. And there was a sort of a UK equivalent that was going on and very influenced by it. And my parents found their faith in that. And it wasn't without its faults, as, as these things rarely are. And the actual church that they effectively got converted into, and, and I was brought up in my early years, was known simply at the time as the Fellowship, the Jesus Fellowship. It later became known as the Jesus Army. It kind of took on a more kind of almost militaristic vibe in its later years. But it was where my parents found their faith. They believed that they were kind of going back to that New Testament model of having everything in common. It was very radical, but it was also very isolated from the world. It was very kind of like everything outside was considered worldly. So I grew up without any kind of access to TV, even radio, even newspapers. We were educated, interestingly, in the public schools, but we were seen as weirdos. You know, we were from that weird religious cult. So, so it was a kind of strange mixture of things. And my parents actually eventually left it because they saw the effect it was having, especially on teenagers who were raised in that community. They started rebelling because they just couldn't, you know, relate to their peers. And my dad saw some of the destructive effects, I think, and that led to a very painful decision for my parents at the time to, to mm. leave that religious community. Did you have other siblings that were with you? Yeah. So I'm actually one of five children uh, that my parents had. So I have one older sister and I have three younger sisters. <laughs> so really, my older sister and the sister just below me, we all kind of have memories of being in the community, especially my older sister. Okay. She has both positive and negative associations with that time because it was a very strict community in some senses that, that mm. we, we were born into. My two youngest sisters, less so because my parents had left by the time my second youngest sister was born. And my youngest sister came quite a lot later. She was kind of a surprise. <laughs> and uh, so I was I was 14 years old when she was born. So she's always been my baby sister. Yeah. How about you? Like, what do you remember from like your own eyes at that time? I was probably only about five or six when they left. So okay. these are very young memories, but right. I just remember kind of running around in a, a really rural setting because it was basically the house that we were in most of the time sharing with other families was just this old farmhouse with lots of fields around. I have memories of lots of church services because there were, you know, there was obviously services on Sunday, but there were also midweek services. I remember kind of my dad putting us in sleeping bags and we would be sleeping underneath the chairs in the church service because these meetings went on for hours and hours. And so the kids would just be, you know, sleeping on the floor at their parents' feet. I remember though, kind of a lot of variety of people coming through. They had a kind of ministry to down and outs and drug addicts and all kinds of things. And so you kind of had a lot of interesting, let's say, people wandering through at various points. But for me, again, I guess from a child's perspective, I, I just remember that sense of not fitting in at primary school, especially in those first couple of years of primary school, where I didn't know like what the kids were talking about when they said, did you see the latest TV show of Doctor Who? You know, I was like, Doctor Who. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't know what, you know, Transformers was or, mm. or anything like that. The kind of things that, you know, the kids would be talking about. And and we got basically called Jesus freaks because they knew we were from that weird church, you know, where we didn't have access to TV or radio or, or whatever. 
And to, to that extent, I wouldn't say it had a massively negative impact on me, but you kind of got the sense that you were different somehow. And, you mm. know, even at that very young age. Mm. Do you remember that being a sense of great distress for you? The fact that you weren't able to relate and connect and were being teased or, or was it not that big a deal? I don't think it was that big a deal. I think there was a sense of even at that young age, you do, you do get the sense of you want to belong and you can't. But at the same time, you know, there were other kids in the Christian community who were, you know, the main kids you hung out with and, mm-hmm. and so on. So, so it wasn't that. I think if I had stayed on there into my teenage years, I think that's when you would have most felt that sense of, oh my goodness, I'm a, I'm a freak, I'm a weirdo. You know, I think it's at that age that the peer group thing really kicks in. And right. I can understand, as my dad saw, why so many young people basically couldn't hack it, you right. know. And the way he saw it was, you know, yes, their parents may have made the decision to become part of this community, but the children hadn't made that decision. Mm. And it was kind of something that was being thrust on them and all the rules and regulations and sacrifice, you know, was not something necessarily the kids had signed up for. So yeah, um, I guess that's it really. Mm. Again, it's one of those things where good things came out of it. You know, my parents' faith to some extent, the faith Mm. that they then passed on to me, but where obviously it's a human institution and there were, you know, things that that did not go right in it. Gotcha. So once they left, did they stay in Northampton or did they move altogether? They moved into a village quite nearby and they kept in touch with a lot of their friends from the movement, even though they had left themselves. In fact, my father now, because of the collapse fairly recently of the whole thing, a lot of people who spent the whole of their adult lives, you know, from their early 20s through to retirement in that community and essentially gave everything they had to the community mm-hmm. and are, are now left effectively destitute. He's been using his abilities because he's kind of a landlord and has a housing business to actually help some of them have a home, essentially. And and so he's he's kind of sees almost his responsibility now to help some of his friends who were in that community and, and have kind of been left a little bit, mm. yeah, in difficult hardship to do that. So we came out of it and we moved into a village nearby in Northamptonshire. I started going to a, uh, the local primary school there with my sisters and my parents started attending a more kind of standard kind of evangelical church mm. in the, the main town center, basically. And and that's really where I then found my own faith as I started to grow up in that environment. Got it. And so were they still teaching in Oxford or at other schools? No. So they, so they were just students at Oxford. So once they'd graduated, oh. uh, my dad went into a job as a electrical engineer okay. uh, with, a, with a company. And... When people, you know, who were part of this Christian community, they still had jobs outside of the community, but everything they earned went into the kind of the shared resources yeah. of the community. So he worked and, you know, uh, had a, a wage that that brought in income to the community. Within the community, they had a number of kind of business ventures themselves. They had a farm and a kind of whole food shop and that kind of thing. So people who didn't necessarily have a career outside of it could still contribute within it. Generally speaking, there wasn't a kind of expectation that women would would go out and have jobs at that time. So my mum was home and looking after the children, along with other women, you know, in that community. So it was quite a traditional kind of mm. gender roles kind of, you know, environment at the time. My mum went on after that, after we left, to kind of actually have a career teaching foreign languages, actually. So she did a lot of teaching of adult students in French and Italian, which was what she'd done her degree in. And my dad went on to continue to do what he did in terms of chemical and electrical engineering, eventually moved on from doing that actually and moved into 
kind of the property business sort of mm. at around the age of 40 or so. And that's really been his main form of income ever since. But he continued to consult uh, yeah. in the business area and, and that kind of thing. Gotcha. Let me ask you this. What's your older sister's name? Grace. Grace. If I were to ask Grace, what was Justin like as a kid growing <laughs> up? <laughs> what would she say? How would she describe you? Oh, I've never even asked her that myself. So I don't know. Um, she'd probably have said geeky because, you know, if you picture me as a kind of nine or 10 or 11 year old, I had these really big specs very thick i'm very short-sighted but i wear contact lenses okay so i don't wear glasses but if i were they'd be like jam jar thick glasses and i had this kind of bowl shaped mm. haircut so i kind of looked like a you know a, a dork basically <laughs> and i think she'd probably say i was a bookworm because everyone mm. told me from the age of a, when i could read really i just devoured books and so I don't think I was too annoying as a younger brother <laughs> from, from what I hear. I'm sure I have my moments. And I've never been a very aggressively male male, if you know what I mean. I'm, I'm, mm. And I wonder whether that's sometimes because I was raised, you know, with four sisters. But uh, yeah. Okay. So that, thank you for that picture, by the way. Bowl shape, haircut, big glasses, bookworm. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> I was incredibly shy as well. Um, mm. I, I've always been, in a sense, an introvert. I can do the kind of public speaking, and you know, I've always enjoyed from a quite a young age doing things like theatre and drama and that kind of thing. But I've in social settings, I'm not a, an extrovert. And when it came to like the classroom, you know, growing up, I was never one of the popular kids. Uh, mm. I, I was in the the geeky end of the classroom <laughs> setting, so that was that was fine though. And you know, I eventually got round to getting rid of the the bowl cut and the glasses and that helped by the time I, but that was only when I was about 15 or 16. So, okay. yeah. So when did you discover this love for learning in books? I guess, and I think it was because we didn't have TV and stuff mm. when I was young. As soon as books became available to me, as I was read, that was where I went. You know, I loved reading. I started to read novels and everything. I, you know, remember going to the library a lot of weekends and taking out books. And I used to love those pick your own adventure books. Do you remember those where you kind of had to decide yeah. whether and you had the dice? Go to this chapter. Yeah, I had to kind of fight people and, and all that sort of thing. I guess I've always kind of had an imagination. You know, I've, I'm, I'm kind of a fairly creative person. And I think I was able to always just enter the world of stories and books quite easily and uh, and they would fire me up. I didn't do a, an awful lot of kind of creative writing myself, but I would create quite long and elaborate like comic books because I enjoyed, ah. you know, drawing them and, you know, yeah. making up some kind of story and about an action hero or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, commune aside, this is feeling like a very idyllic, you know, <laughs> type of, uh, you know, environment growing. Northampton is you know, like it's more of a villagey, slower pace. Yeah. It's not London. Well, Northampton itself is a sort of mid-sized town in the UK, okay. but I did grow up in a village outside Northampton. So it yeah. was a kind of a village, quite rural yeah. kind of environment. I, you know, if you wanted to go in and do something exciting, you had to drive into the town and uh, mm. to, to do that and, and so on with your friends. I will say something that's quite, I think, important, you know, as we go back into childhood is is the kind of school I was at. Because okay. here in the UK, kind of like in the US, we wouldn't call them public schools because actually the funny thing is in the UK, the word public school is actually associated with private schools. 
um, because it's one of those weird sort of things that doesn't translate. But when we talk of public schools, what we talk about in the UK are the very first schools that were established, Eton, Harrow, Winchester, places like that, which today are the most prestigious private schools that people can go to. But because they were the first schools, in a sense, in the UK back in the day, they were termed public schools. But in fact, they're not public at all. You have to be very rich and, you know, to, to actually send your children to those schools. Anyway, so what you call public schools, we would call state schools. And so most most kids in the UK would go to a state school. We did go to a state school at primary level, but my dad sort of didn't like what he saw going on in some of the state schools in the local area. And he found this very unusual, independent, very small school called St. Peter's that he sent us all to sort of from from a certain age. And it was a private school, but it was run on an absolute shoestring. So it, it didn't cost an awful lot to send your kids there. But what was unusual about this school was because it was so small, there were probably not more than 150 children in the whole school. And that was going from literally age five to age 18, you know. Mm. And so it was more like being in a family. And if you were like, you know, when I was 14 or 15, you know, in the school, I would know the kids who were four or five years old, you know, and it was also very multi-ethnic, which was quite unusual for Northampton, which is a very predominantly, you know, white sort of middle class area in the UK. But for whatever reason, the school was attractive to quite an interesting diversity of a different ethnicity. So we had a number of Muslim kids who went to the school, but perhaps from Pakistani type backgrounds, a number of kind of black kids who were maybe, you know, originally from the um, sort of Nigerian or Caribbean sort of origin. And because I was growing up with that from quite an early age at that school, it was just normal to, for me to, to be hanging out and have friends who were non-white. And, and I didn't think that much of it at the time. It was only afterwards. And I started to interact with other people who had been to schools that were more kind of mono-ethnic in background. And my wife, for instance, you know, was raised in rural Dorset. And it, it, in on, all honesty, you know, she had rarely engaged with someone of a different skin color before mm. she moved out of her rural environment as an adult. So for me, that was something that I didn't realize until later was actually something very valuable that this strange little school, you know, independent school was actually a really good place to be able to engage in a whole diversity of age range, but also in, in you know, an interesting diversity of ethnicity. And and I think that was, yeah, it was just an interesting, you know, hmm. aspect of my education growing up that not many people of my age necessarily had the opportunity for. What was it that your dad saw there? You said it was unique and he saw something that he that was different than the state schools. I think primarily it was that he saw it was a very strictly run school. <laughs> and he saw that kids there like behaved <laughs> and <laughs> uh, learned. And he saw a lot of, I think, bad behavior in some of the state schools okay. that he, he saw. And so he kind of wanted to send us there. It, in many ways, it made actually some things more difficult because it was so small and run on such a shoestring that it really didn't have any great resources mm. and it couldn't pay its teachers much. But the teachers who taught there chose the lower salary because they could teach classes in ways that they couldn't in the yeah. state sector. So it was kind of one, a, an interesting thing. And 
I was the very first student from that school to go to Oxford University, for instance, whereas most mm. schools would have, you know, at least a, a good contingent, you know, of people because of their size and whatever who, who would go to Cambridge or Oxford. But, you know, there had never been a student who had gone to Cambridge or Oxford before me. So, and that was just a factor of it being such a small kind of, you know, school mm. in, in that way. But um, it no longer exists, sadly, the school. It closed down for various reasons several years ago. But I do count one of my best friends for life, mm. a guy called Charles, whose father was the headmaster of the school. You mm. know, we became fast friends at a young age and continue to be to this day. Wow. So tell me a little bit, you mentioned your dad. Now, you guys were the only two men in the house, <laughs> or boy and man. Like, what was your relationship like with him? Well, I feel like I'm on the psychiatrist couch here, Russell. <laughs> this is like really kind of like, I've never gone this in depth in any podcast before. So basically, I would say from my point of view, I, I, I really appreciate the model that my dad gave me. Um, mm. Something that's kind of, for some reason, quite indented in my memories once just opening the door to my dad's bedroom and seeing him kneeling next to his bed with a bible in front of him and it's funny because that's probably just one moment in thousands you know where you encounter your parents as a child but for some reason that that moment has stuck in my memory and i think i think i really value the fact that my dad did model a very kind of you know sincere and devout christian faith mm. he always took a very open handed approach with me to things that, you know, you could talk to him about all things, really, you know, he, he wanted to be open and, uh, he, you know, so there weren't, you know, it wasn't like subjects were off limits or anything like that with my dad. Uh, and he loved talking, you know, he was a kind of sciencey engineer type. He, you know, he, if you had questions about the world and that kind of stuff, he would love to engage you on that. And, uh, he developed at least a real enthusiasm for sailing after he'd left the community. Mm. So we used to go out on these little kind of dinghy really with a <laughs> sail. And he used to take me and my sisters out to the local reservoir and we used to teach us how to sail there and that kind of thing. So I remember kind of bonding with him over that kind of thing, but also, you know, doing those things that I guess fathers are supposed to pass on to sons, not that I've passed them on to my sons, but, but to things like, you know, this is how to change the wheel on your car and, you know, that kind of thing. He was quite hands-on. He knew how to do that kind of stuff far more than I have ever <laughs> learned to. He was quite active in the garden, you know, growing vegetables and that sort of thing. And I think probably I really appreciated his, his inquisitiveness in his mind around issues around sort of science and faith and that kind of thing. He really kind of helped me in my early years when I was starting to kind of put things together. He kind of, I guess, held out what the different options are. Where, you know, mm -hmm. I remember early on having a conversation with him when we were driving to school one day and I said, Dad, what do you think about the whole fact that Genesis says Earth was created in seven days? What you know? Uh, what, what do you make of that as a scientist? And and he kind of said, "Well, look, maybe we're not meant to read those early chapters as as kind of a scientific account necessarily of, of how the Earth was created. Maybe they're more telling us about why God created." So that he was just kind of gently pushing me in the direction of starting to think about, you know, how to think about faith and that kind of thing from those sorts of perspectives. And uh, yeah, so he's certainly been a very influential part of my life. Gotcha. So, all right. You mentioned 1516, out goes the bowl cut, in comes the new Justin <laughs> um, with the new vibe. And you mentioned being the first in your school to go to Oxford. What's Justin thinking about at 16 years old and, you know, moving forward and what's going to be next in your life? Well, obviously I'm thinking about girls. That's that's one thing <laughs> I'm thinking about. And and 
being completely unsuccessful in ever acquiring <laughs> a girlfriend. So, so there's that going on. But the other big thing, really, the, the huge thing, really, that happened to me at the age of 15 is I would say I became a Christian. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'd been going to church and, you know, all my life with my parents. But I, I would say up to that point, it really had been a kind of inherited faith for what it was. There'd been moments over the years when something had felt different or more real maybe but not it hadn't landed in a kind of very specific way up to that point and then i went on a kind of youth camp i guess this is a such a typical story for so many people but at the age of 15 i went on a youth camp and i was blessed to be in a church where there was quite a vibrant youth ministry and a real committed youth pastor who you know really took that seriously and i just remember that weekend something changed you know i well i know exactly what changed i i had what i would say was a encounter with the Holy Spirit. Mm. It was a charismatic evangelical church that we were part of. And that's always been kind of the heritage that I I guess I've come from. And while I appreciate everyone comes in different ways to faith, this was the way I came. And for me, it was a very powerful experience of sensing that God had come in in a new way to my life on that weekend. It was a very emotional time. There were tears, there was laughter, but whatever you think of those phenomena, as it were, all I know is that from that day, from that weekend, I can count from that weekend, a penny dropped. The world of Jesus just became multicolor for me. There was a kind of, suddenly this was something I really cared about. This was like the meaning of my life was to follow Jesus and to, you know, that was it. And and everyone around me said I was different. Mm. That was the the testimony of others. And from that point on, that kind of really changed the trajectory of what mattered to me at school. You know, I I was trying to kind of tell my friends about Jesus from that point onwards, whereas it never really factored before. I, you know, I probably became known as a bit of a zealot, you know, (laughs) in those early years. But I was also just kind of swept up in kind of wanting to, to know more of God, to pray, to read my Bible, you know, started to help to lead worship, um, in our, you know, youth group and that kind of thing. So that was kind of where, where it all began for me, kind of around the age of 15. Oh, that's something else we have in common. I came to faith at 17, and I remember because I also had glasses uh, <laughs> and, and braces. See, I, I had the full <laughs> – I didn't have a bowl cut, but I did have <laughs> – But um, when you're nearsighted, you don't realize for a while that – there's a problem with how you see the world. It just, mm. you just think it's normal. So blurriness far away, mm. Mm. sharpness up close. And I remember the first time I walked out of that eyeglass sensor and everything was sharp and bright. And I was like, oh, this is how the world's supposed to look. And that's how it felt when I came to Christ. Mm. Like all of a sudden I'm like, I was missing out on this, like the, 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 the clarity, the, the precision, the sharpness uh, yeah. just felt like something more. And it sounds like that's kind of what you It's funny you, you mentioned that example because I remember that exact same feeling when I was first um, prescribed glasses. So this I would have been probably about 10 or 11 when mm-hmm. I got my glasses. And I just remember I'd been telling my parents, I have to be near the blackboard to see what the teacher's writing. And I had to kind of be near the TV to kind of... I remember it was the first moment when the optician just put the test lenses in front of my eyes and suddenly it was like that's what the world's supposed to look like i had the exact same feeling and i know exactly what you mean when you say that coming to faith was kind of a similar kind of experience yeah 
So with this newfound zeal, like what, what did your parents think in your family when you came home? I mean, obviously they, they were delighted because they were committed Christians and they, I guess, you know, they'd always, they always wanted their children to yeah. continue in their footsteps in terms of faith and so on. But it was not that long after that I kind of got baptized. And so I think there's still a VHS tape somewhere floating around of me <laughs> getting baptized. But in my tradition, they were quite flexible with baptism. And uh, my dad was in there in the baptismal pool as well, kind of helping to baptize me, you know, so that's, that's a kind of special memory. So they were just, yeah, delighted that I'd kind of taken that step. And that just gradually grew, you know, over time. Uh, I mean, obviously, it was only a couple of years later that I was, you know, heading off to university. Another weird thing about my education, Rezul, was that in my school, there was they were quite flexible about moving kids a year ahead of themselves if they wanted to. And, and I got moved up a, a year. So I was kind of a year young for the, the grade I was in. That meant when it came time to, to go to university after A-levels here in the UK, I had to defer it by a year because you couldn't go to university until you were 18. And I would still have been 17 at that point. And so I had the opportunity to go on a gap year, the first half of which, while I was still 17, was kind of spent uh, in Europe, and that was kind of through family, friends and things. But the second half, once I did turn 18, was in Uganda, working with Youth With A Mission. And that was a very formative six months that I spent there as a young Christian and just in a completely different culture, working alongside Ugandan Christians and yeah, I think that went very deep in terms of that Christian faith that I'd come into then kind of being sort of tested and shaped and molded in that entirely different context for six months. So that was very important and was an amazing privilege to be able to have that gap year before I then went off to university and started to engage some of the more intellectual questions. Yeah, so like, let's let's go there because I know I studied abroad in Cameroon, so the other side of the continent, but it was very formative for me in a lot of ways. And it kind of hits you, at least it hit me, as soon as I got off the plane. I'm, I'm, I'm someplace different, all right? Like, <laughs> what do you remember about your entry into Uganda? When we come back, Justin will share how his time in Uganda shaped his faith but only after being stranded alone at the airport as a teenager. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. What's up, where you're from, listeners? You like free stuff, right? Well, check this out to hear how you can get my favorite set of earphones, Power Beats Pro. I use these when I work out, cook, and when I'm listening to my favorite podcasts, like where you're from. How can you enter to win the giveaway? Simply fill out our brief survey by clicking on the link in the show notes. Once you do that, you're entered to win. It's just that simple. So won't you do it right now? You'll have until November 7th, the day of the last episode of season five to enter. Thanks for listening to where you're from. Peace, y'all. Hey, y'all, before we get back to our conversation with Justin Brierley, I wanted to share a quick teaser from our next episode with Ali Henney. This is where you're from. Everything that he's been calling me is a racial slur. 
it wasn't just us just going back and forth and trading insults the way that some, like sometimes your kids, your, you, at least where I come from, you roast people, you trade insults, right? He's saying these things to me and it's mean because I'm black. Now let's get back into our conversation with Justin Brierley on where you're from. I literally remember that moment stepping out of the airplane and just being hit by this wall of humid heat. <laughs> I felt like I'd just sort of walked into some kind of greenhouse or something. That was my first memory was like, this feels different to where I just flew from in London. Everything was just suddenly like, I am somewhere completely different. And mm. obviously it, yeah, in every way it was different. I mean, I still, I still think back and think, you know, how crazy this was, whether I would let my kids go off and do this. But like, this was before mobile phones and everything else. I'd just been told I was meeting a guy called Rogers at the airport. <laughs> Unfortunately, Rogers was very late. <laughs> so I, my first experience of walking into Entebbe airport was, uh, there's no one here to greet me. <laughs> and I was just being approached by all these kind of um, taxi drivers saying, hey, do you want to lift somewhere? Do you want to lift somewhere? And me just sort of saying, oh, I think I'm being met by someone. Uh, anyway, he showed up eventually. Welcome to Africa time. Yeah, exactly. Welcome to- <laughs> so it's like, I felt completely out of my depth. And like, I'm just this fresh faced 18 year old <laughs> who's just uh, arrived in on the African continent. And I don't know who I'm supposed to be meeting at this at this airport so anyway i was in safe hands once once he arrived and apologized they'd had a tire blowout or something on the way and and that was the start of an amazing six months um where i was working both alongside other people slightly older usually people from the uk who were there on a kind of what youth with a mission would call the discipleship training school but also a lot of local ugandan young christians who were also doing the discipleship training school in the, the base they had in Ginger. So I actually went there to kind of help with building this thing. But what I ended up doing in reality was a kind of the DTS course by proxy with these other kind of volunteers on the YWAM base there. So so it was an amazing experience. It involved me, you know, at one point spending a few weeks on a very remote island on Lake Victoria where they had a base and having the opportunity to go around with the medical team where they would deliver vaccines for children mm. uh, in these very remote locations, but also where they would preach. So I would be preaching to, you know, Muslim elders in a, in a village on a remote lake in Lake Victoria. I mean, it's with a translator, you know, it's crazy, isn't it? What can happen? But that was, that was the sort of stuff I was able to, to be involved with. So. Wow. So it sounds like a very rich experience of both being able to meet physical needs and communicate and proclaim faith and spiritual ones. How do you think that experience shaped you? I think it did teach a certain amount of kind of reliance on God, because when you are kind of put into a very different environment, which is so challenging in so many ways, you you just, you know, it deepens your prayer life immediately. <laughs> you kind of, I mean, I, I got quite severe malaria while I was there. I was on the, the anti-malarials and everything, you know, that were prescribed at the time. But for a, a couple of weeks, I was very sick. But that was also a testing ground, you know, for seeing the way that God kind of brought me through that. I would say one of the things that shone through for me was the privilege of being able to see the way Christianity lifts rather than crushes different cultures around the world. In its best forms, Christianity can liberate and bring out God's diversity, but sort of in a way that honors and transforms 
people where they are and the culture that they're part of. And, and that was just a tremendous privilege because being able to see very different ways in which Christianity is played out and works in different environments was incredibly educational and helped me to see just how big God's kingdom is, how, how it works in different environments and the way the gospel translates into different parts of the world. Mm. That's something you can't you can read about it, but when you go and see it, it's, it's something else, you know. You know, something that you shared there is very beautiful and aspirational. Like you said, Christianity at its best, elevating a culture. And yet, in certain circles, that's very controversial mm. to think of. And so I'm kind of curious about, like, what was an example of a way that you saw Christianity elevating uh, mm. the culture? Well, I would say, for instance, in the fact that the church in being a kind of place for where they started to deliver medical help and education and everything else in those missionary settings. And this was done not just by white missionaries, but very quickly, it was indigenous Christians who were doing that. In my view, that helped to shape in a very positive way, that culture. And you could see the way in which the Christian churches had benefited the culture in in terms of that sort of the rights, the education, the way in which women and children were given opportunities and rights that they simply hadn't actually had necessarily before. Having said all that, obviously there is a dark side. You know, often that missionary activity was allied with a certain form of sort of colonialism that existed in those, you know, especially pre-independence countries. So it, you always had to try and disentangle what was the. Mm-hmm. The kind of colonial aspect of that and what was the kind of the genuine sort of gospel aspect of that and at its best i think it was when the people themselves were were taking the faith and they were seeking to transform the country around them with that faith and not sort of rejecting the culture that they were part of and again this is something we it was a real kind of weird interesting thing in, in the the church the services lasted for hours and hours which was not our experience in in the uk they were still kind of effectively using kind of traditions and liturgy and sort of things that were, were kind of from the 1800s, actually. Mm-hmm. So they, they kind of stuck with a very kind of traditional form of church in that environment. But then once that bit was done, like which was maybe the first hour or so of the church, then the rest of the three or four hours was like a very much a more kind of indigenous local expression of Christianity where they had all these youth choirs would come along, you know, they would bring the the drums out and everything else. And it was just one of those strange things where there was still kind of hangovers from the kind of the colonial mm. missionary kind of era that you just thought, well, you know, it's a strange mixture, isn't it, when you've got when you've got that going on. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, I think you talk about both aspects. Cause really for some the colonialism is part of the Christianity. They can't see yeah. the distinction. But what you're able to observe is the fact that, well, wait a minute, when I look at what was aspects of faith and ethics versus what was kind of cultural mm. um, imperialism, you can see a difference. Yeah, I'm kind of curious because you mentioned earlier that St. Peter's was a multi-ethnic school. But I imagine even with that background, going to a place where you know, you ain't seeing a whole lot of people look yeah. like you, maybe. Mm. Tell me a little bit about that and how you experienced or gained insight about who you were in light of just the location that you were in. Yeah. I think the big difference was you were 
a very unusual white person in uh, obviously a predominantly black country. And you quickly learned you would be followed wherever you were by young kids shouting out Mzungu, Mzungu, which basically meant white person, white person. Because you were just, you know, it was, you were interesting and different. And, you know, and I think that the tension for that was, you know, rightly or wrongly, you know, there, there's a kind of culture of respect for people who come from elsewhere, and especially Europe and America, that was kind of there in the African culture of, of you know, you got treated especially if you turned up, you know, at a church, you know, you were put on the front row, you know, as special visitors. And it was hard to dissociate that whether you it was because you were white or whether just because you were coming as a sort of guest, you know, from, from outside. And I think there was that kind of sense of uncomfortableness that it might be a bit the former rather than the latter. And I think I, I struggled with that a bit because you're keenly aware of, you know, I guess I'm more aware of it now than I was as an 18 year old, but you're, you're aware even at that age that there's been a history to these countries and mm. that sometimes you don't want to be coming in as the quote unquote white savior because you're here to sort of help the local population, you know, build the thing or whatever. And as I say, that's why I've always felt like I received far more than I ever gave in those situations. Yeah. So <laughs> one of the things that I learned that was kind of uh, surprising about African culture when you get there is how much more direct people are. Like, so when I studied abroad, I was the only guy in the group, right? So it was hmm. 14 women students and me. And I was one of only two African-Americans on the group. So they would literally sometimes call me out and be like, hey, you, <laughs> man, black man, come. <laughs> and like, yeah. I would just leave the group and then they would just take me out to eat. Like just, you know, <laughs> but then mm. you can't say no because of the sense of hospitality. So you just kind of yeah. have to roll with it. There was no sense of like, we have to be somehow smooth or or delicate with this. It's just, this is what we're doing. We see you, yeah. we want to honor you, come to the front. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I had that same sense, you know, that, well, I'm, I'll just go with this, even though my sort of British sensibilities don't really kind of go, you know, I think the tension always is, you know, where does sort of good, genuine Christian theology begin? And where does a kind of westernized sort of version of, well, this is what you should learn in a good Bible school. <laughs> when does that start to creep in and start to potentially suffocate, you know, what is a perfectly God-given and valid African expression of spirituality so i think there's always been that tension and i i guess i was less aware of it as an 18 year old but increasingly i suppose aware of it when mm. i returned to africa you know three or four years later gotcha and so yeah let's talk about the return back to the uk so now you're no longer a bright-eyed bushy-tailed you know 17 year old <laughs> you're a, a world traveled 18 year old <laughs> heading to oxford so for those who may not know uh, on the state side just tell us a little bit about the role of Oxford in England, the uniqueness of that school in, in the UK? Well, it's one of, you know, probably the, the best known universities in the world. Uh, it's one of the oldest in the world alongside Cambridge University. But yeah, it was an amazing experience. It was and still is based on the kind of one-to-one -one tutorial model, which is an incredibly, you know, privileged thing to be able to have where you get one-to-one -one time effectively with incredibly bright academics, you know, at the top of their game. I went to study politics, philosophy, and economics, and I had an amazing three years. They work you hard. So every week you got your 
reading list and you had to dash off to either your college library or whatever libraries dotted around Oxford to try and be the first to get the books before they all went. And you had to then, you know, spend the week reading before producing that essay, which you would then have to read out to your college professor, you know, but that kind of tutorial mode of learning, reading, writing an essay and having it critiqued, you know, in person every week by an Oxford academic. I didn't realize it at the time how unusual that is, but that was the way those three years were conducted. And it was also a place which has always had a very strong and vibrant Christian union. Mm. And I know a number of people who found their faith during those university years as well. I think unlike the US, we don't have anything like a kind of Christian university. I think there's still enough of a kind of Christian population in the US to kind of have a broadly speaking, these kind of Christian universities where you can kind of go and kind of still live in it, something of a Christian bubble. That just doesn't exist in the UK. And so being a Christian, you are immediately in a minority in the UK. On a personal level, the hardest thing for me was I happened to arrive at Oxford with a girlfriend and she, in the process basically of that following year and a half, lost her faith, basically. And that hit me quite hard. And caused me to question an awful lot about my faith at the time and led me into a season of quite significant doubt in probably my second year. But for whatever reason, I think sometimes doubt kind of washes in and then goes out again. And I'm, I got through that period basically, and I found that my faith was still there by the time I came out of it. Yeah. So speaking of that journey, so you you kind of arrive on the other side of that questioning and doubt. And so what is the next step in your evolution to kind of get to where you ended up being? I think uh, yeah, a huge a huge part of it was meeting Lucy, my wife. She came from a very different theological tradition to me, very different church background. She grew up in a much more kind of mainline traditional church. And unlike me who had had this kind of very kind of road to Damascus moment on a youth weekend, she had just had a very gradual dawning awareness of God. There was no kind of moment when she could say she became a Christian, but she knew that she was a Christian. And in fact, she'd had a very, very early sense of calling on her life to ministry. And uh, we fell in love quite quickly, but we kind of had to work out how we were going to make our different faith traditions kind of merge. We decide before we jump into the adult world of jobs and houses and kids to to go on this gap year. So uh -huh. we, we got engaged in our final year at university. We were, all our friends thought we were crazy because, you know, who gets engaged at university? But we, we did. Uh, we got married about six months after leaving university and went off almost just less than a month probably after that on this eight month period to Namibia. So we went there and we were based on this kind of quite traditional mission station with a church, a hospital and a school in the northern part of Namibia, where the vast majority of the population lives. But we just loved our experience there. We ended up teaching English uh, and maths in the secondary school. Lucy did a lot of work with the local uh, minister of the church. And it was during that time that the head of the organization came out to visit us and said, hey, Justin, I know you're going to be looking for a job when you get back to England. I just had an interview on this radio station called Premier Christian Radio. Um, maybe you should get in touch with them. And and I did. And Lucy, meanwhile, had started the process for candidating for ministry 
in our church denomination just before we left. And she actually flew back for one week from Namibia to take part in their selection conference, basically. And we found out at the end of that week that she had been accepted for ordination training. So that meant that when we did return to England, we were going to be living in Cambridge, where the uh, theological college was that she would be doing her ordination training at. So once we got back, Cambridge became our new home for three years, more or less. And I began working for Premier Christian Radio. And so what did you start to do for Premier? So believe it or not, my very first job was listening through hours and hours of preaching programs. Mm. The reason for this was that Premier Christian Radio began in 1995 as the very first dedicated Christian radio station in the UK. This was only, you know, six or seven years later, but they had been hit with a fine by the radio authority at the time because an organization called the something like the Occult and Mysticism Federation had had a number of volunteers listening around the clock to Premier Christian Radio, to the preaching programs that they broadcast, to see if there was anything said controversial by those preachers that could land them in trouble with the mm. radio authority. And a number of complaints had been put in to the radio authority about some things that some of the pastors on these preaching programs have said, I think about Satanism specifically. And so Premier had received a fine at the time for one of these particular complaints being upheld by the radio authority. So they had decided that they needed people to listen through every single minute of every program that we broadcast from then on and note down anything that might get us in trouble with the radio authority that might constitute something that is unfair to another religion or worldview. So I, I ended up listening to like Chuck Swindoll and I don't know, Adrian Robertson and all, all these, you know, well-known American ministry preachers, usually on about two times speed. Uh, so I got through more in a day and then just making a note of anything that might be deemed controversial. And then I would have to edit that little bit out of the sermon before it got broadcast. So that was my introduction to the world of Christian broadcasting, bizarre as it may sound. That is. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I did graduate, fortunately, fairly quickly from just doing that role to actually starting to learn the ropes of radio presenting mm. journalism i started to do a kind of become the uh, uh the sidekick to the morning show presenter who was a long-standing presenter called john pantry and i started to then learn how to present the show when he was off on holiday and that kind of thing and that kind of gave me my introduction really to the you know radio journalism interviewing and it was about three years in that I then went to the boss and said, hey, I'd love to have my own radio show. I've got this idea for a show where we could bring Christians and non-Christians together because I love the fact that we talk to Christians about Christian things. And it's really important, you know, uh, in a very secular country like the UK to have that. But I said, most of the people listening actually spend most of their time around non-Christians. So mm. shouldn't we kind of model a little bit what that would look like to have conversations with non-Christians? And, you know, to his credit, he said, yeah, let's give it a try. <laughs> and an unbelievable was born. So when you started, how confident were you that this was going to really take off? Um, I honestly didn't know. And I didn't know what direction it would ultimately take. All I knew was I felt like I wanted to see what would happen when we brought a non-Christian in. I guess in my mind, I had this fairy tale idea that by the end of the show, the non-Christian would be kneeling, repenting and, you know, <laughs> There would be a sort of, this would be a constant stream of converts coming through this radio show. It didn't, didn't quite turn out like that. I soon learned that there was this whole area of study called Christian apologetics and mm. soon began to learn who some of the main 
protagonists were on both sides of that, you know, the, the well-known Christian apologists and some of the key atheist and skeptical voices. And just through a period of starting to, to engage all that, I started to, to bring on some of the, the well-known names in that area. Hmm. We were quite early adopters of podcasting. So about hmm. two years after we launched the show, we started podcasting the show. And that completely changed the dynamic of the show because up to that point, we were essentially broadcasting to a Christian audience. And then with the podcasting, what was really interesting about that is it introduced a non-Christian audience to the show as well, because suddenly the atheists and skeptics who came on, you know, if they had an audience, or, you know, if they had a blog or something, they would share it, the link on their blog. And suddenly I'd be getting emails from atheists and skeptics and non-Christians. And that suddenly made me feel like, okay, now I've got a really quite diverse audience that this show is reaching. And it made me far more aware of my role as a kind of neutral moderator in that thing and not just here to kind of represent the Christians. So I, it was a huge learning process for me. I was very green myself. I, I learned an awful lot in the process. And it was only really 10 years after the show started that I felt in a position to actually write a book of my own on apologetics, but because I felt like I'd I'd heard enough by that point to kind of work out where I stood on some of these debates. Yeah. And it was interesting. Tell us the title of the book, um, because it definitely relates to uh, the program and how you approached you know, your first book. Yeah. It was named after the show. So it was called Unbelievable. But the subtitle was why after 10 years of talking with atheists, I'm still a Christian. <laughs> and so the idea was simply that, look, I'd put myself in the middle of these, these often quite, you know, full on debates between Christians and non-Christians for 10 years at that point. And one of the things people asked me when I did a special 10 year edition of the show <laughs> where I did a kind of ask me anything type thing. One of the key questions was, well, how come you're still a Christian after hearing the best arguments against Christianity? And so I thought, well, that could be an interesting subject for a book. So that was what I essentially put down. I, I kind of tried to make my case for faith, which was a bit different. It was putting on a very different hat because up to that point, most people just knew me as the, the neutral moderator. In fact, very often, you know, what some of the Christians and non-Christians said when they wrote in was, it took me a few weeks of listening before I realized you were a Christian yourself, Justin, you know. And I always took that as a compliment because yeah. I wanted to, to kind of make people feel at ease, feel that they were entering a kind of a genuinely kind of fair, neutral space. But obviously writing a book as a Christian, uh, making the case for Christianity, I was obviously nailing my colors to the mast and trying to explain what I felt were the most compelling arguments for Christianity and against atheism in that sense. But trying to do it, hopefully, in that genuine, winsome, trying to see the positives as far as possible from both sides and not not just kind of erecting straw men or anything like that. So there's some lines, you know, in, in hip hop culture, we call them bars. Uh, you got some bars uh, <laughs> in this, but one of the ones that really arrested my attention that I, I had to ask about, because I'm like, I don't know if I'd ever think I'd see this sentence in English before. I thank God for Richard Dawkins. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about who Richard Dawkins is, his mm. role in UK space and why you thank God for someone yeah. like him and why I would be surprised. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, if I can just preempt that with also saying that the, the new book yep. is called The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. And to some extent, my first book, Unbelievable, that was kind of my kind of case for faith, if you like. Right. This new book is much more about kind of looking at where we're landing just now in terms of the conversation on faith. And Richard Dawkins obviously was the leader of 
a movement commonly known as the New Atheism uh, that arose in the early 2000s, very much kind of in response to things like 9-11 mm. and the kind of battle around science and creationism in American schools. But it was this very vociferous, quite dogmatic form of non-belief that said, not only do we not believe God exists, but we think religion is really bad for you. And so that was a lot of what Unbeliever was responding to in those early years. Because, you know, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins became this best-selling book. The internet was enabling kind of these skeptical communities to, to coalesce. And there were big kind of skeptical gatherings and things like that going on in the kind of new atheist movement. And in a way, that gave a lot of energy to Unbelievable because it was a really specific kind of critique of faith that we were responding to in that and I think the reason in this new book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, I said, I, I thank God for Richard Dawkins is because I think he really helped the church in, a, in an ironic way to take its intellectual tradition seriously again. Because I think the church had kind of been asleep at the wheel in the West for quite a while. We'd entered into kind of through the 60s and 70s into a, rightly or wrongly, a, a more kind of emotional hmm. version of Christianity in, in large part. And there's nothing wrong with that. You do need emotion in Christianity. And Christianity without emotion would be pretty soulless. And if it's purely intellectual, that's, you know, you, you're getting the balance wrong. But at the same time, I think to a large degree, we weren't catechizing Christians anymore with, with what they believed and why. And when the new atheism swung into town, a lot of churches and Christians were left on the back foot. They didn't know how to respond to this sudden upsurge in quite militant atheism. That was reaching, you know, their young people through podcasts and YouTube and and these books and everything else, and so it forced the church to pick up its Thomas Aquinas again and its, you know, start reading C.S. Lewis again and everything else. And for me, that was a very welcome swing back of the pendulum in that sense. And the irony is that I know people now who are Christians because of Richard Dawkins, you know, because it was Dawkins' sort of arguments against Christianity when they were just kind of, you know, agnostics that made them think, well, I'm going to look into this for myself. And they actually discovered good Christian apologetics that led them on a journey to faith. How did you come to become aware of this rebirth? I think what I noticed is having started The Unbelievable Show in that kind of new atheist sort of, you know, <laughs> wave of, of skepticism, and we did a lot of those kind of classic God debates between the big Christian apologist and the, the big atheist skeptic. In the last several years, I started to see that really wane. I saw far more people, when they came on as a non-believer, as a skeptic, kind of distancing themselves from the new atheism and Richard mm. Dawkins. I think for a lot of people, that movement itself had begun to look a bit dogmatic and religious itself in a, in a funny way. And what I noticed coming in its place was still secular intellectuals, but asking very different questions and, and with a very different kind of motivation and asking basically, can we live in our culture without the Christian story? Mm. Because the new atheists had come along and said, God doesn't exist. Science is our best route to you know, understanding the world. But what we discovered is it didn't really satisfy any of our deepest longings or questions and that we're starting to see, especially with the rise of technology and everything else, a real kind of meaning crisis emerge in our culture. I began to see all these interesting other secular intellectuals who had kind of decided, okay, 
new atheism kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't believe in Christianity, but I can see the good effects that Christianity has had on the West. So people like Tom Holland is uh, a well-known historian who isn't a signed up Christian necessarily, but wrote a, a whole book called Dominion on the way in which he discovered as a secular historian, the way in which all the things we take for granted in terms of human rights, equality, democracy, so many more things are essentially the fruits of the Christian revolution. Secular intellectuals who were basically saying there might be some wisdom in this old mm. book called the Bible, and we shouldn't necessarily just cast it aside because we think science has kind of you know given us the answers. And the more I was seeing those conversations happen in the public domain, the more I was featuring them on the show as well. And these were very different conversations to the traditional atheist Christian mm. debates. They were people who didn't agree necessarily in terms of their religious outlook, but had a lot in common in terms of the problems they were seeing in culture and whether actually faith might have something to do with addressing them. Yeah. So what do you think is the role that being a listener in so many of these environments plays in the way that we have a Christian witness in our world today? I think being sort of the one who has moderated and listened to both sides for a long time did, did help to give me a kind of a ringside seat to a lot of these conversations. And what I found surprising in both in the course of writing the book and just in the last few years of hosting conversations is that, you know, you look at the statistics today and by all accounts, you know, church going is on the decline, you're seeing the rise of the nuns. And once again, people are <laughs> prophesying the death of Christianity, the death of God in the West, at least. I mean, actually, when you look more broadly, the West is only one little part of the picture and there's actually a very different picture globally. But anyway, sticking with the West, my thesis is that maybe we are just starting to see the first fruits of the tide of faith coming back in because I think people have tired. They've got bored and disillusioned by the materialist secular story of reality. Mm -hmm. It hasn't answered any questions. It has certainly hasn't addressed the meaning crisis that exists in our culture, which is also an identity crisis. And I've just seen too many examples of people that I would never have expected to suddenly find that Christianity suddenly makes sense of things for them. And so I tell a lot of those stories in the book, both people who seem to be on a journey themselves, some of these secular intellectuals who seem to be edging very close to Christianity and people who have crossed the line to faith. And my sense, uh, just having had the privilege of speaking to a lot of these people on both sides of the debates, I've just noticed that maybe the tide is starting mm. to change in our culture. I think so. And you wrote this in the book, uh, as shocking as it may sound from somebody whose day job is in apologetics, these stories remind us that the most fruitful way we can introduce people to the Christian story is through the realm of the imagination rather than the intellect. Mm. We do that by making people want Christianity to be true in the first place by showing how it meets our deepest instincts about what matters most. Why do you think mm. that is? Because we're more than a brain on legs, basically. <laughs> and the problem with apologetics has always been that it can lead to a form of idolatry where you think I can just have the answer to everything. And as long as I can kind of give you a rock solid philosophical argument for God, you must accept my conclusion and become a Christian. That's not the way people work in reality. You can show an intellectual case for faith, for God, for Christianity. But if people don't want it to be true, 
there is always going to be another intellectual objection they can reach for. Mm. People are far less rational than they like to believe they are. Mm. So for me, to capture people with the Christian vision of reality, you have to appeal to something deeper than the intellect. You have to go to the way they want the world to be. And mm. so much of that is actually captured in our modern films, the music. It's Those are the places where people feel suddenly connected in a new way than just through those kind of intellectual arguments. And for me, the Christian story is at its most powerful when you're engaging it, not just as a kind of set of intellectual propositions that there's a God who created the universe and sent Jesus into it to become our savior, but where you really kind of see the poetry and the story and the narrative and the the just the emotion of that that whole story and once you get people to see that this is the way they would like the world to be i think you're at the tipping edge of them taking it seriously and i just think that's where we need to be remembering that people are a big mix of things and yeah. we need to speak to both sides of them you know well, I'll get you out of here on this. Um, you know, you've been known significantly for your work and appropriately so in Unbelievable. And you recently announced that that chapter is closing and you're opening it up a new one. And so love to hear what that was. How did you get to a place of seeing in light of all the amazing things that it was time to move on and, and what's next for Justin? Yeah, there's been a really big transition period in my life. I've kind of been the host of Unbelievable. I was the host of Unbelievable for, as I say, for 17 and a half years. And I'd founded the show and everything. So it was a huge thing to say goodbye to the show. But the time had come, I felt, to do some new things. I felt God calling me into some new areas of ministry to continue in that whole area of cultural apologetics. Mm -hmm. And it will involve continuing to try to bridge the Christian and secular world and bring them into conversation. But I'm trying to do it in some new ways. And that includes this book, the surprising rebirth of belief in God, a new podcast. I'm co-hosting a podcast called Reenchanting, where we're bringing some of those stories that I tell in the book to life through both Christian and non-Christians, but who s see the way in which hmm. the world could be re-enchanted with the Christian story of reality. And also by the time this podcast airs, a, a new podcast documentary series based on the book, The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, in which I tell the story in the book in a kind of documentary style uh, on podcast. So you can find out all about it at my website, which is justinbriley.com. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gussman, and was engineered by Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Diana and Orshika for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.